Well, good morning. Oh, come on. It's 80 degrees and it's the middle of September. Good morning. There we go. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm enjoying being the campus pastor here. Uh, today, as you've heard over and over, is open house. And I'm really excited this year, especially because for the past however many years I've been here, five, six years, no one has ever let me in the bounce house. I now have a two-year-old. I'm going in the bounce house today. I'm supervising, but I'm going in the bounce house today. All right, I'm excited about that. We would love for you to grab some coffee, come back, join us after. Uh, we would love to uh, hang out with you. We are kicking off a series here as we jump into the fall called Asking for a Friend. Uh, and as you heard in the video, sometimes uh, you know you have a question and you feel really, really embarrassed to ask it, right? Like maybe you're going to the, the mechanic shop and you're trying to explain something like, so my friend has this issue with his car, really it's your car you're talking about the whole time, right? There's just certain things in life that you feel like you should know the answer and you just feel a little embarrassed to ask it. And so uh, actually I'm going to give you a few examples this morning for you to kind of understand what we're talking about. Here, here's one for you this morning. Uh, is it rude to throw a breath mint in someone else's mouth while they're talking? I'm just asking for a friend, right? Just, uh, just asking for a friend. Uh, here's another one. This I think came from one of my middle school friends. Does a pack of Starburst count as a serving of fruit? All right, just... I'm just saying, it, it, it's got all the rainbows, it's got all the fruit in there. I think we're all right. Here's the next one. Uh, I don't know who this friend was, but let's throw it up there. Uh, can you divorce your in-laws, but keep your husband, all right? Like, because if that's possible, some of you are like, give me the paperwork now, okay? We're just gonna move, we're gonna move forward on this. Next one, this one might be mine. Uh, what's an appropriate amount of Taco Bell to eat in a week? Asking for a friend, like, at what point is it a problem how much Taco Bell? Here, here's one, I won't say whose this is, but it's a friend. Let's just say a 30-year-old wants to go to a Taylor Swift concert. How would he go and not look creepy, all right? That's what we mean. Just, sometimes there's just questions you don't know what to do with. Really what we're talking about in this whole series, we're going to bring up issues that we all deal with that don't often get dealt with. They're kind of the things in church circles that uh, as you come in the door, you're like, is it okay to ask these questions? Like everybody else around here kind of seems to know what's going on, but I, I kind of don't. I kind of have a few things that I'm wondering. And today, uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to be asking a question from our friend, of course. Uh, the question our friend is asking is maybe one that you've asked before, and we're going to ask it today, which is, when does God give up on you? Like, as you consider your friend and his life and her life and the decisions she's made, like, is there a point where you've just crossed the line? You made one too many decisions, or you made that same decision one too many times, that, that sin, that whatever it might be, where God just finally says, enough is enough. Like, is there a point where God just gets so tired of your nonsense that he gives up on you? See, this is the question we're going to be uh, wrestling with this morning. Like, it, it is, is it okay to be not okay and be around God? You see, this was a question, actually, that surrounded Jesus for much of his ministry here on earth. He was always around people that really, frankly, the religious crowd didn't think he should be around. People that, frankly, uh, were just a little too far gone to be around such good a religious leader like Jesus. And in fact, it was an accusation that you see thrown against him in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And, and here uh, we see this exact accusation being thrown at Jesus, where basically they're saying, um, you shouldn't be around these people. They're just too far gone. They're not good enough to be near you. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we would love to put one in your hands for free back out at the Welcome Center. 
Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear uh, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus has drawn a really interesting crowd around him. He's drawn the high, high religious leaders. Um, essentially, you could think of this like the Pope and his posse uh, has come around to, to listen to Jesus. But then also there's all of these other people that probably walked out of a bar, if we were to modernize this, they walked out of a bar and now they're both sitting next to each other uh, listening to Jesus talk. And this really high religious crowd is looking over going, look at this guy. He claims to be good, but look at who's following him. Look at the crowd around him. Well, Jesus knows this. He hears this because he knows all things. And he begins to tell a couple stories. He begins to tell three parables of things that are lost. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost sheep. And then he goes on to tell this whole story. Jesus loved to speak in parables or stories with kind of spiritual meanings. And he begins to tell the story about a family. So jump down to verse 11 with me. And we're going to walk through this story as we ask the question, how far gone is too far gone? Verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. We're going to kind of unpack some of the meaning behind this because some things that would have been very apparent to the crowd Jesus is speaking to may not be uh, apparent to us right off the bat. So in those days, if a man had two sons, what would happen was the older son would get a double portion. So he would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son would get a third of the inheritance because uh, the older son always got a double portion. But that inheritance or portion was only ever given after the father died. And so uh, what's happening here really is this younger son who gets a third of it is coming up to his dad. And really what he's saying contextually is, dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't want to be around you. Would you just hurry up and give me your money already? I want to be gone, right? That, that, I don't care what culture you're in. That's an insulting, painful statement. And for them, their wealth was not in a bank account at M&T Bank or NBT. Their wealth was tied up in their property. And so for a man to give his inheritance, he would have had to have sold his land or a portion of his land. And their land was their identity. To have land was to be Jewish, was to be a man. And so really what this young man is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead and I want your money. And by that, I mean, you're going to tear apart your standing in community. You're going to lose face. You're going to lose reputation. Dad, just forget you and give me your stuff. Just incredibly insulting. And the people hearing this story, as you are, would feel a little bit of rage. But the crazy thing is that's not the unusual part of the story. The unusual and unheard of part of the story was how the father responds. The father gave a share of his property. He divided his property between them. It would have been expectation for an ancient Middle Eastern man to not only deny this request from the younger son, but to drive him out with violence. He would be expected to basically beat his son out of town, forsake the son basically, and keep his property. That was what was expected, but he divided the property. And this word property here actually is the word bios in the original Greek, which means by the course of life, the very thing that sustains life itself. So Jesus is saying the father divided his life between the sons. Well, what does the son do with this newly acquired wealth? Verse 13. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This younger brother uh, decided he was going to take all of his money, all of his wealth that he just acquired, and go wild living. He was hopping on a, the one nonstop flight to Vegas, and he was going to do all the things you do in Vegas when you have a ton of money to lose, right? He just lives this wild life. Jesus doesn't go into great detail describing the wild life. You kind of leave it up to your imagination of what you do in Vegas if you're going to blow all your inheritance. Uh, and he runs down this path that so many have run down. A path that really what he's doing is searching for meaning. He's searching for joy. He's searching for happiness. And this is just the direction he thought he was going to find it. But as anybody who's ever run down that road, ever chased the things of the world can tell you, is that the well always runs dry. The next night out just doesn't cut it. The next bigger night out just doesn't cut it. The next purchase just doesn't cut it. The next whatever never satisfies the heart and it always runs dry. Well, it drove this man to really the pit of despair. He's now hired himself out to go hang out with pigs. And you don't, maybe you're a 4-H'er and you think this is awesome. But for the Jews, pigs were off limits. They were unclean. They weren't allowed to touch pigs. They weren't allowed to be near pigs. And so the good Jewish audience listening to this is thinking, this man is taking care of animals that we're not even supposed to be around, which means he doesn't care about God either. Because now he's unclean to go worship according to the Old Testament dietary laws. And then it gets even worse because it says this man wants to eat the food of the animal that they're not even allowed to eat. You see this absolute despair. The original readers and hearers listening to the story would have hated this man. As you consider the story this morning, I want you to think about somebody perhaps that you just frankly disgust. Now you're like, oh, we're in church. We don't disgust anybody. Come on. All right, let's be honest with each other, right? Like the person that just brings up the venom in your heart. This is what Jesus is trying to entice in them. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He, like perhaps you or your friend that we're asking the question for this morning, finally came to the point where he chased sin so long that it drove him to the end of himself. And he said, the pain of going back and reconciling, the pain of going back and dealing with the consequences of my choices is more favorable than staying in this pit. Sometimes we have driven ourselves to such dark places that we finally look up and go, how in the world did I get here? How in the world did I end up here? I'm tired of this pain. I want change. This is where the young man has come. But he does what you and I so often would do in a position like this. He begins to come up with a plan to earn his way back to the Father. He knows he messed up. He knows he screwed up big time. He knows he has to try to work this off to make it Right, and so he, he puts in this restitution plan and he says, I'm gonna go back as a hired servant. Now, this is a really interesting a word he uses here because he doesn't say I'm gonna go back as a slave. 
because a slave would live on the father's property, have access to the father and be around, but he says, I'm going to come back as a hired servant. Well, a hired servant didn't live on the property. They actually lived off of the property in town, and then they came and worked. So he's saying here, I'm not even worthy to be a slave in my father's house. I'm not even worthy to live on his property. I'm going to be on the outside, and maybe after a long period of time, I'll finally be on the inside. Perhaps for those of you who've been to a dark place, you've been to places that you've run that you don't like and you, you felt that pit of despair, you can resonate with the younger brother here. Maybe you felt like you were always going to be on the outside from God, that because of where you've been and what you've done, that you'd have a long way before you ever got close to Jesus because of the, the choices you made. You may resonate with what the young man is saying here, but he has moved towards the Father. Let's keep reading verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I want you to imagine this moment with me here. You have a son who, who basically spit in your face, ruined your standing in the community, squandered your wealth, you thought was dead, asked for you to basically ruin your life. And you see this yellow taxi pulled down the road. I didn't have taxis back then, but you're going to imagine this with me. You see this yellow taxi pulled down the road. And out pops that son down a long gravel driveway. What are you thinking as a father? What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and cross your arms and go, this better be good. This man has hurt us. He has ruined us. Maybe if he grovels long enough, he can come on the property. But that's not what the father does in the story here. What does he do? His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father does what no man in that day would do. He, he girds up his loins, basically, which had been super embarrassing for an ancient Middle Eastern man. He runs down the road and he just latches onto his son and kisses him and has compassion and immediately... The son feels guilt, he feels shame, and he feels unworthy. He feels the embrace of the father and goes, I don't deserve this, and begins to put in this plan to tell the father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm willing to work this off. I'm willing to do whatever it takes, but the father will have none of it. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's the greatest day in the father's life. And he goes and he kills the fattened calf, which uh, would have been unheard of in those days. It would have been the most expensive delicacy. And the only time they did it was really when the whole village would come and enjoy this. And so really, he's throwing a block party for the whole town, much like we're going to be doing today, to celebrate the fact that what was lost has been found. And you see this wonderful, wonderful moment. And maybe as you hear this story, you resonate with the younger son. You yourself have chased things. And maybe they started innocently. Maybe they started chasing a career. Maybe they started chasing some numbness. Maybe it started chasing whatever. But as you continue down that path, you found yourself in a place that you never imagined you'd end up. You found yourself thinking things that you never thought a person like you would think. You, you thought found yourself engaging in things that 
you swore would never be true of your life. And yet you're there. And maybe you've hit rock bottom like the sun and, and you've tried to come back to the Father, but you just never seem to get there because all your best efforts always have you feeling on the outside. You see, Jesus tells this story here for anyone who, who feels like the younger brother that, that there's nothing, and I mean nothing, you can do to earn God's love. What the Father declares here in the story is the same thing Jesus declares to you, is that you're in by sheer grace. It is freely given from the Father for you. And so the answer to the question that your, your friend is asking, when does God give up on you? The answer is never. The answer, the Father is always waiting for you to come home. And when you do, he's there with open arms to receive you in. It really is a fairy tale ending to a wonderful story if that's where the story ended. See, if the story doesn't end there, because Jesus is going to begin to talk about the older brother, and it's actually kind of the whole point of the story. Let's see how Jesus continues the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard the party. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? He said, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Think about this brother for a minute. He's the one who stayed. He's the one who obeyed. He's the one who listened. And when he hears that his brother that everybody thought was dead is back, he says, I'm not going in that party. Essentially what he's saying to the father in the community is if that brother's in, I'm out. If the father's going to let that guy back into the family, I want no part of this family. I want nothing to do with it. So here's what the father does. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him brother, he doesn't want to acknowledge that it's his brother. He says, when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now you can read this and come down a little hard on the brother, the brother, but think about this. It's the one who screwed up everything for your family. And in fact, you probably lose some of your inheritance now because you lost money early on with this brother taking it and running away. And so every dime that is spent now is this brother losing money. What you notice that he's most outraged about is the cost. You see, the younger brother wanted the things of the father, but he didn't want the father. He wanted the father dead, and he wanted his money, and he wanted to go live his life. But the older brother, he's not much different. He didn't really care that the father got a son back. All he cared about was that he got to enjoy his things as well. Neither of these sons wanted anything really to do with the heart of the father. And here's the father's reply to him. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother said, I've never left. I've been the good son and I didn't even get a, a goat and you do this for him. And he said, of course we did because we thought he was dead and now he's alive. And just as you are waiting for Jesus to tell you 
that the older brother came in and the party went on and the family was restored, Jesus ends the story. He never tells us if the older brother comes in. He never tells us if the older brother came home and celebrated with the family. He left it because the people he was talking to are the older brother. You see, we think of sin in a very traditional depiction in our mind very often. We think of it like the younger brother. We think of it in wild living. We think of it in self-indulgence. We think of it in, in whatever the world has. And that's really what we think of when we think of sin. But Jesus is going to describe a different sin, a different look of sin in the older brother. It's one of pride. Oh, you're going to do this for him? Someone he thought he clearly was better than? You're going to show grace to him? Clearly, I deserved this. You see this entitlement in him. And then you see just this morality in him that says, I've been good enough to deserve everything but him. But what they both lacked was a genuine relationship with the father. You see, some of us, like the younger brother, we, we tried to get control by breaking the rules. You didn't like where your life was going, and so you said, forget God's laws, forget God's rules. I want my life the way I want it, so I'm going to break all the rules. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to chase whatever. But then some of us, like the older brother, we also wanted control. We also wanted the things that God was supposed to give us, and so we decided to keep all the rules. We decided to be a good the good one. We decided to be the follower. And at the root of both of them is not a desire for God himself, but for the things God offers. They didn't want God. They wanted what came from God. And the crazy thing about this whole story is that the lover of prostitutes is saved. He humbles himself. He comes back to the father. But the high moral man, as far as we know it, is lost. You see, sometimes when we think about coming to God, we think about it in terms of cleaning ourselves up, getting better. I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to stop smoking, I'm going to stop cussing, and God's going to love me. False. God loves you as you are. He accepts you as you are. Those things don't rank you anywhere in acceptance before God's eyes. And what this declares to us is that excuse me, most people think God wants good people, No, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ declares to us that God wants new people. That it's not about your effort. It's not about you trying. It is about you coming to the place of surrender. Whether you think you're good or you think you're awful, the answer to both is the invitation the father gave to both sons. Would you come home? I'm going to play a video here in a minute of a dear friend of mine, Sarah. She uh, tells a story very similar to the one uh, that we just read. As she explains what really the process was in her heart of realizing and seeing uh, how lost she really was and how found she became in Jesus. Go ahead and take a minute with this. My home life was amazing. We grew up in a Catholic family, and so I can't remember not knowing Jesus' name, not having him as a friend to pray to and talk to. In college, I started to have experiences and classes where I was having a lot more questions than answers, and went and did whatever I wanted to do. I was in sports, I got the best classes, had the great grades, was studying, had good social groups, um, great friends, and I was replacing one thing for another. 
If I went to the cancer club and got that fundraiser done and I did so good in it, well, it didn't matter that I partied. And if I, um, you know, was attending church on Sunday, well, that would just replace my sins. That's, that's good enough, because look how good I am over here. That covers this. And I think at the time I didn't intentionally make it that way, or I at least definitely wasn't spending the time thinking through it. Um, and when I reflect back, that's exactly what I was doing, not even knowing or not, you know, in the forefront of my decision making, deciding, oh, this is good enough, so that's fine. You know, I'd, I didn't walk through it like that, but when I reflect on it, that's all that it was. You know, this is, I'm doing this so good, we don't have to talk about that. After college, um, I moved up in this area to become close with my um, now husband. And when we got engaged, I, I was like, we need to, <laughs> we need to get some marriage counseling. We need to be connected to a church. Um, and I'm telling you, the loving people of Bridgewater really were the ones who poured into us and encouraged us. Just in the most recent season, um, I have to give some credit to the pandemic. I was put on an improvement plan at school. I'm a teacher and I pour my heart into it and I care about it a lot. And through the pandemic, I didn't realize that I was on survivalism mode. And um, so the district called me out on some things that I needed to improve on and that shattered my reality because just growing up and always getting straight A's and always doing the right thing, always checking the boxes. You're supposed to do this, done. You're supposed to do this, done. And I, I get a lot of pride from that. I enjoy checking boxes, being in my job, having a passion for it, it's going great. And then the pandemic saying, you could be doing better was like, what? I wouldn't hear it in the beginning. Um, and thankfully was in small group brought this to people who love me, people who, you know, were able to speak truth in this situation. Um, and just, they just encouraged me to just keep bringing it to God, keep praying, keep talking to him about it. And I feel like every time I did, he was uprooting something in my heart that was in the way of me seeing his truth and experiencing his truth. It was in the way of me accepting the grace, which is, I've made mistake or I did not live up to the excellence that we're called to. And so it was this year, April 22nd, and Matt had led anyone who was needing to say, I need to be forgiven of my sins and that I wanna give my whole life to you, Jesus. Um, and I just remember sitting there like, how do I, how do, why do I feel this pull? Like I've never said this prayer like I have just now. Um, it wasn't about what I what I learned and the knowledge and the logic. It was me finally giving my heart to God. It was me changing. Well, I love Jesus because he's so good and he's, no. I love Jesus. He has been there for me. He's been faithful for me all through. If you would come to the Father with that leap of faith, he will meet you there and he will surprise you with just abundant grace and abundant forgiveness and abund abundant joy and life and freedom. And I'm just so thankful that I get to walk in that. My name is Sarah Empit and I'm here to make more and better disciples of Jesus. What I love about Sarah's story is as she was around church, she was in church, she was around all of this and she was still willing to ask the question, where is my heart in relationship to the Father? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you relate to Sarah, or maybe you say, you know what, I'm so far gone. Listen, the invitation to both sons and to you is the same. 
will you return to the Father? Will you return to the Father? No matter how far away you feel or no matter how close you feel, the question for us this morning is, is our heart surrendered? Are we living in a life-giving, joy-filled relationship with Jesus? The book of Romans is going to describe for us exactly what that looks like and how it takes place. Let's read this. Romans chapter 3 says, For everyone has sinned. And maybe you're here this morning as you're listening to this. You're like, man, this thing is whatever. I haven't sinned. I'm fine enough. I'm a mostly good person. The scriptures would declare to all of us that we all fall short of his standard of holiness. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Verse 24. Yet God, despite being such a failure... In his grace, freely makes us right with, right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. It's just that simple. Sarah talked about the forgiveness offered in Jesus. That forgiveness was possible because Jesus went to the cross and took the penalty that you were supposed to pay so that you never have to pay it. And you don't earn it by being good. You don't earn it by behaving. He gives it freely and that gives you a new heart that you begin to act differently out of. And maybe you're here and and, and for you, that's a decision you want to make today. We would love to pray with you in a few minutes here. But maybe you're here this morning and you're still feeling this pull of kind of the older brother's heart. And here's what Paul would say to you in in Romans in two verses later. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal or our freedom is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Verse 28. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. The invitation for all of us this morning is to freely walk into the the most life-giving relationship you could ever imagine. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here this morning and as you've been listening to this story, you're you're feeling a pull on your heart that that is the Holy Spirit moving inside of you to finally come home to put down your striving, to put down your running, to put down all of it. And to come back to a relationship, to come perhaps for the first time to a relationship with Jesus brings you home to the Father. If you're here today and you would like to make that decision, would you pray this prayer with me? And it goes something like this. Father, I come to you today broken aware of my sin and I'm aware of my failure and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of trying. I need your help. Today, Jesus, I surrender my heart to you. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and I accept you as my leader and forgiver. Today, Jesus, I declare that I belong to you. In Jesus' name every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer, uh, what the enemy would want you to do is to be silent about it. We would love for you to come find me, come find David, come find somebody wearing a blue name tag. If if that feels too much for you, in front of you there's going to be a blue card there with a communication card. Go ahead and mark on there that you made a decision or indicated in salvation. We'd love to follow up with you this week at a time that would work for you. As we close out the service here this morning, go ahead and look up. As we close out the service here this morning, uh, the band has prepared a song for you that that really is an invitation. 
It's the invitation of the, the story. But I'm going to encourage you, please remain seated. Enjoy this. And here's the question I want you to ask this morning. As you consider your relationship to the Father, whether that relationship started three minutes ago or 30 years ago, where is your heart with the Father? Could you say today that you are celebrating with great joy, walking in freedom, walking in forgiveness, and walking in the light of Jesus? And if not, would today be the day where that relationship is restored or perhaps built for the very first time?